0: For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com awards. Only at Sleep Number stores or sleepnumber.com. In May
1: 1950, Roman Papaduke was born in a displaced persons camp in Austria. His parents were Ukrainian and had been taken by the Nazis to Germany during World War II to work as forced laborers. The family soon emigrated to America and, via a brief stint on a farm in Iowa, settled in Brooklyn. Fast forward to September 1991, and Papa Duke was working as a press secretary in the National Security Council. Leonid Kravchuk, who would go on to become the first president of an independent Ukraine, was visiting the White House and chatted with Papa Duke in Ukrainian. Larry Eagleburger, the deputy secretary of state, overheard. I know where I'm sending you, he told Papaduke. A few months later, his meaning became clear. As America quickly established democratic relations with newly independent countries following the collapse of the Soviet Union, Roman Papaduke became the first US ambassador to Ukraine. Three decades on, the ties between the two countries that Papaduke helped to forge have proved crucial in Ukraine's fight against Russia. I'm John Prudeau, and this is Checks and Balance from The Economist. Each week, we take one big theme shaping American politics and explore it in depth. Today, how long will America continue to support Ukraine? A year on from Russia's invasion, Joe Biden has made it clear America's backing for Ukraine will not waver. The image of the aviator-clad president walking the sunny streets of Kyiv earlier this week with Vladimir Zelensky was a symbolic show of this continued support. But Ukraine needs more than strong words in a photo op. With an impending Russian offensive and fears of ammunition running out, does America have the will and the means to back Ukraine for as long as it takes? And what does its commitment in Europe mean for its readiness to help defend allies elsewhere? With me this week to talk about Ukraine one year after Russia's invasion and about America's policy towards Ukraine and where that's going are Idris Kaloun coming to us this week from Kentucky, his home state, and Charlotte Howard in New York. Idris, how are things in Kentucky? Have you observed any clogging since you've been back
2: to your home state? Uh, You know, we we do two daily cloggings. So I've just had my morning clog and, uh, you know, looking forward to my afternoon clog as well. Clogging,
1: for anyone who didn't listen to last week's episode, is Kentucky's official state dance. Um, Charlotte, how are you doing and what's going on in New York?
3: We've moved into a new office this week, which is very exciting for us, if for no one else. And I've been very much enjoying our really extensive coverage of the one-year anniversary in Ukraine. I continue to find our colleagues who are writing about Ukraine, both from within the country and from our Russia experts and defense experts, to be the the absolute best journalism on this war out there.
1: Yes, our coverage of Ukraine is really second to none. And one of the people who's contributed to it is Anton Logardia, who's our diplomatic editor here at The Economist. He's been thinking a lot about how America's military is preparing for the future. And later in this episode, we're going to hear his interview with General David Berger, who's the head of the Marines. But first, I asked him to focus on what's happening now in Ukraine.
4: On the one hand, it has gone better than anyone expected this time last year, when even the great generals of the U.S. Army expected Russia to roll over Ukraine and to, for them to be supporting at most a rump government in exile or some kind of insurgency. Instead, thanks mainly to the bravery of the Ukrainians, Ukraine as a country has survived and has even begun to push back Russian forces. However, there is much to be played for Both sides are preparing for what looks like a very difficult fighting season in the spring. Indeed, the Russian offensive may already have started in a desperate attempt to claim some kind of success ahead of the anniversary. And the Ukrainians seem to be biding their time, waiting for the promise of new equipment from the West to arrive and to materialize and give them a punch that might allow them to pierce through Russian lines and perhaps push all the way through to the Sea of Azov, thereby breaking the land bridge between the Crimean Peninsula and the territories that Russia has captured in the east. But that's a very difficult enterprise.
1: Anton, you've covered lots of wars for The Economist. How familiar does the war in Ukraine look to you now in the sense that Quite often, there's a period at the beginning of a war when people are optimistic about how fast success can be achieved. And then after a while, that war settles into a longer stalemate and a realisation gradually dawns that actually this conflict might go on for a really long time, you know, five years, maybe 10 years, maybe more.
4: I think that there, there is that dimension. The difference between this war and the ones that America fought in Iraq and Afghanistan is that American soldiers in those long conflicts were dying. And therefore, when success seemed to recede, the United States tired of uh, losing blood and treasure over those faraway places. In Ukraine, I think America is spending a lot of treasure, but is not losing blood over Ukraine. At the same time, in Iraq and Afghanistan, it convinced Americans that it was fighting a war to respond to the people responsible for 9-11, which had been a direct attack on America. And Russia's invasion of Ukraine is not a direct attack on America. It's an attack on the American-created international order, which is a slightly nebulous concept to be spending a lot of money on indefinitely. So I think that with time... Uh, you will start to see people tiring of the amount of money that's being provided to Ukraine. You're seeing that on the right of the Republican Party, especially. That said, uh, Vladimir Zelensky is a compelling character. He got a rapturous reception when he visited uh, Congress. I think there's a feeling that Ukraine is a worthy cause for America in a way that client governments in Iraq and Afghanistan were not. And in the end, there's a difference between wars of choice and wars of necessity. Ukraine is fighting a war of necessity, and therefore it's willing to fight on indefinitely uh, for its own survival. For America, it is still a war of choice, and therefore is much more vulnerable to public opinion turning against it.
1: Charlotte, Anton mentioned their public opinion on the right seeming to turn more sceptical about America's support for Ukraine. When you look at the numbers, are you struck mainly by how soft support is for Ukraine or by the contrary, by how solid it seems, frankly, and bipartisan? What story do you think the data tell?
3: Well, the data to me actually make both points. Both that support has meaningfully softened over the past year, but that it is nevertheless still quite robust. So if you look at the polling data broadly among the American people, 26% now say that America is giving too much to support Ukraine's effort in the war compared with 7% last year. And there has been a decline across the board with a particularly steep decline among Republicans. So if you look within the GOP, 40% now say America is giving too much. But that's actually now, even with those Republicans who say that American support is about right or not enough. So it's 40% saying too much and 41% saying that the level of American support for Ukraine is appropriate or even insufficient. So I think both points can be made. I mean, you see across the Republican Party, some people, some politicians now using this war as a way to argue that President Biden is distracted from the issues that affect Americans. But nevertheless, you do have other Republicans who continue to voice really strong support for Ukraine, including Mitch McConnell, the Senate minority leader, who at the Munich Security Conference said, quote, the death of Republican support for strong American leadership in the world have been greatly exaggerated. So they're definitely a strong group of Republicans who maintain what has historically been a a hawkish bent within the party.
1: Idris, where do you think the centre of gravity is within the Republican Party on Ukraine? Because clearly that matters for how enduring America's support of Ukraine can be. Because it it strikes me there are at least sort of three camps. I mean, you've got Charlotte mentioned there, Mitch McConnell, you've also got senators like Tom Cotton, who wrote an op-ed in the Wall Street Journal a while back saying the problem in Ukraine was that Joe Biden hadn't offered enough assistance early on. So criticism for not being supportive enough, then you've got a lot of people, including Governor Ron DeSantis, whose line is America can't be writing a blank check for Ukraine, which is a kind of interesting criticism because it's not a head on takedown of the Biden administration's position, right? The Biden administration actually hasn't provided a blank check for Ukraine. So it's kind of a criticism of a thing that's not happening. And then you've got a bunch of people who've latched onto this idea that because Joe Biden was in Ukraine while Donald Trump was um, at the rail crash in East Palestine in Ohio that Biden's been putting Ukraine first while Trump's putting America first, which seems like a more sort of critical line. But where do you think the center of the party is?
2: Yeah, I I think you're both right. I think that the Republican... Overall, whether you measure it by just voters or by elites, there is increased skepticism about the amount of money that's being devoted to helping Ukraine defend itself. The latest estimates are uh, above a hundred billion dollars that have been spent. Uh, roughly half of that is on military aid, the provision of shells and whatnot, and the other half goes to things like maintaining the government. You know, Anton is right that because American soldiers aren't dying, there's you know going to be less of a popular backlash, but that could be a significant amount of money, especially if it continues. And I think that what I've been hearing also in D.C. is, you know, among American allies and folks in in embassies there, uh, certain amount of apprehension about what the next presidential election might mean to America's commitment. So, you know, Joe Biden says that America will never waver. Mitch McConnell is is kind of similarly in that camp. I think uh, Kevin McCarthy is a bit shaky because of his particular precarious uh, position as Speaker. But a lot of embassies right now are scrambling to figure out what Rod DeSantis thinks about NATO, um, whether or not he would continue to sound skeptical, as he has lately, in, in saying that there shouldn't be a blank check. And they're definitely fearful about a return from Donald Trump, who at the outset of the invasion praised Vladimir Putin's move as a stroke of genius and obviously uh, clashed with NATO quite a lot. So there's a lot of uncertainty about what this might look like if it continued for the next two years.
1: That cost point strikes me as really interesting. I was talking to our deputy editor, Ed Carr, who wrote the cover leader on Ukraine this week. And he was pointing out to me that the support for Ukraine, the military support for Ukraine, amounts to 6% of the Department of Defense's annual bill. That strikes me as not a lot of money, given what the US is getting in exchange. I mean, if you bear in mind that Russia has become increasingly hostile threatens the security of its neighbors in Europe, you know, is allied with Iran, supports Bashar Assad in Syria, you know, does military exercises with China. Essentially for six percent of the DOD's budget, America has helped Ukraine to tie up Russia's armed forces, degrade Russia's military capability quite seriously. You could look at that and say, actually it's cheap at the price.
3: I think you definitely could, but I think Anton's point is worth keeping in mind that to most Americans, this still feels like a war of choice, and that the idea of an international order in need of protecting a post-war, i.e. post-World War II international order in need of protecting is such a vague concept to many. And Antony Blinken, the Secretary of State, when he talks about the end state for this war, he's very firm that there cannot be peace that allows Russia to claim territories, which are not rightfully Russia's, and that any agreement that did so would have long-term effects on the rules-based order that America supports and has supported now for decades. So that's a very powerful argument, particularly in the face of a rising China that's trying to rewrite the rules of the international order. But it's not one that feels grounded in people's day-to-day the way that, for instance, a crisis along the border might. So you see Ron DeSantis, in particular, referring to Biden's visit this week as somewhat of a distraction and that Uh, Biden is not doing anything to secure our own borders here at home, even as he is visiting Ukraine. So that type of argument, I think, is going to become more loud in the run up to the 2024 election, because the tangible issues that people are thinking about now are much easier for those who oppose President Biden to raise compared with the broader international order that Biden is trying to protect.
1: Okay, thanks. In a moment, we'll take a trip to a munitions plant in Pennsylvania, along with our friend John Fassman. Um, that plant manufactures the type of shells that are being used on the battlefield of Ukraine, and which America is struggling to supply in great enough numbers. But first, the usual reminder, we'd love it if you took out a subscription to The Economist, if you're not already a subscriber. And we've just launched a new podcast series to mark a year of the war in Ukraine – In Next Year in Moscow, our Russia editor, Arkady Ostrovsky, tracks down Russians who left the country after it invaded Ukraine. I just listened to the first episode this morning. It's really excellent and a reminder that when Russia invaded Ukraine, it didn't just try and destroy a neighboring country. It's also an attack on many of the good things about Russia. And there are many Russians who've been caught up in this conflict as well against their will. We'll play a trailer for that podcast at the end of this episode and you'll be able to find it wherever you listen to checks and balance. economist.com/uspod is the link to subscribe to The Economist. You'll find it in the notes for this episode. Ukraine needs more weapons and it needs them quickly, but increasing production is a surprisingly complex undertaking. To better understand that complexity, we sent John Fasman, who regular Checks and Balance listeners will already know, to an Army munitions factory that makes howitzer shells.
4: This is where the process starts. So we'll bring the steel in, obviously, uh, by truck or by rail.
5: Rick Hansen oversees the Scranton Army Munitions Plant, deep in Pennsylvania's coal country. It's one of two plants in the area churning out howitzer shells.
4: Um, The crane operator will offload the steel from the truck or the rail car and stack it.
5: The factory covers more than 15 acres. It has a heavy, cavernous, over-engineered Victorian feel to it, with brick walls covered in more than a hundred years of dust and grime and huge, thick steel girders for supports. The plant is worlds away from the hushed sterility of so much modern manufacturing. It's loud, noisy, and dirty, with scuffed concrete floors and a pervasive scent of hot metal.
4: So they're they're 20-foot lengths of steel. Um, They're they're steel bars. They weigh about 2,000 pounds, and we cut those into billets so that they'll go into the um, furnace to get heated.
5: The stubby billets are then heated to 2,000 degrees Fahrenheit, more than 1,000 degrees Celsius. They come out of the furnace red-hot, After that, they're cooled, hollowed out, and then nosed into a precise cone shape. Rick Hansen likens this to cutting the top off a Coke can and squeezing the remaining part into a narrow point without leaving a single crease. Any imperfections could cause the shell to veer off target. Once the shells are in shape, they need a coating. They chemically put a phosphate coating on the round and then they paint it, and the purpose of the paint isn't aesthetics, it's to make sure that uh, if it has to stay in storage for a long time, the phosphate coating stays on. The Scranton factory is just one of about 12 stops the howitzer shells will make before they're battle ready. Next is Iowa, where they'll be filled with explosives. Speeding up the supply chain is proving tricky, America has given Ukraine more than a million howitzer shells over the past year. But even such huge quantities of ammunition are not enough. Ukraine is firing roughly as many shells in a month as America can produce in a year. Although, when I asked the Army rep keeping an eye on the tour if any of the shells I saw being made were headed for Ukraine, I didn't get much of a response.
3: I can't answer
6: that.
5: But Rick Hansen is blunt about the purpose of the factory.
6: We want to make sure that when it hits the ground and explodes, that it breaks up into little tiny parts and those parts kill people. That's what we do. We build things to kill people.
1: So, Idris, one of the constraints on American support for Ukraine is public opinion. Another is just the ability to get enough kit into Ukrainian hands and particularly
2: enough shells. So how is that effort going? I think it's hard to imagine just how much ammunition is being used up in the conflict right now. So Ukraine estimates, according to Anton's briefing, which is out this week, that they're on the receiving end of about twenty thousand shells a day, uh, which is an extraordinary number. They're firing back about five thousand or six thousand a day, but even that much requires this huge amount of arming from America and its allies, and, and really they can't keep up. You know, as Anton and John Fasman point out, the supply chains for production of these munitions are pretty complicated. America hasn't needed to produce uh, munitions in this quantity for a long time. And this goes not only to the sort of more pedestrian munitions like the howitzer shells we were just talking about, but also javelins, which are used as anti-tank missiles, stinkers, which are used uh, to take down aircraft, the HIMARS system, which has been really effective for the Ukrainians in giving them a real edge. Whether or not these these supply chains can be boosted over time, I think is hard. And the other difficulty that we have here is uh, just a lack of, of complete understanding. For obvious reasons, the military is somewhat cagey about describing its ability to uh, produce munitions in a timely fashion. But obviously, it will need to uh, increase the speed if this war is going to continue for the next year or two, which, you know, if you parse Vladimir Putin's statements, uh, not particularly closely, you you can imagine that it will.
3: Yeah, I think it's worth remembering why so much of the burden is falling on America. So that's in part because no one in Europe expected that there would be a ground war In Europe, again, and they planned accordingly in terms of their own stockpiles. So Europe's defense sector has lagged since the end of the Cold War. Within Europe, countries have been giving quite a lot to Ukraine. So the Kiel Institute in Germany has estimates about Norway giving more than 45% of its howitzers, which is a type of artillery weapon, as we've heard the Czech Republic giving about a third of its rocket systems. So it's not that they're not giving a lot as a share of their stockpiles. It's just that that share doesn't add up to much. And so that's why America needs to step in. And it's also worth noting that the critique that some Republicans have made over the years that NATO member countries need to spend a larger share of their GDP on defense also does feed into this, right, that European countries don't spend as large a share of uh, of GDP on the military, and that's being reflected here.
1: That's right, and it's also the case that for both America and its European allies, ever since the fall of the Berlin Wall, the kind of wars that they've been involved in have not been wars that have involved the exchanges of massive artillery barrages and huge rocket attacks, which is what's going on in the war in Ukraine. And so, the whole military industrial supply chain has been kind of geared towards a different kind of war for thirty odd years now, and trying to steer it in a different direction, takes time and is hard to do. And it's worth saying that Russia is presumably suffering from many of the same problems. And the rate of fire in the war in Ukraine seems to have come down a bit as both sides worry a bit more about conserving their supplies. I mean, you might conclude from that that maybe this war is about to end in some kind of stalemate. But from everyone I've talked to, that seems very unlikely, Idris, right? It seems more likely that this war just drags on for a very very long time and those who are focused on you know what the end state is and how Vladimir Putin can be brought to a negotiating table and so on they're likely to be disappointed and people have to get used perhaps to the idea that the likeliest end here is a frozen conflict is as we in the cover leader this week a kind of North Korea South Korea situation that that doesn't get resolved until Vladimir Putin goes or maybe even after that.
2: I see no sign that Putin, who doesn't bear any of the personal costs of the war, is going to stop anytime soon. Particularly, and I think we're going to talk about this in the next segment. If the Chinese were to become even closer and, and start providing uh, ammunition, that would just you know continue the conflict uh, for even longer.
1: It does seem likely that this war is going to go on for a long time. And so next, we're going to be thinking about how that American commitment, which hopefully will be long lasting to Ukraine, affects America's ability to... To help defend its other allies in the Pacific,
0: quality sleep is essential. That's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever evolving sleep needs. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side, helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature?
1: All right, now we're going to go back to our diplomatic editor, Anton Lagardia. In a second, we'll hear his interview with the head of the Marines. But first, I wanted Anton's thoughts on how what's happening in Ukraine affects how America is thinking about the prospect of war in the Pacific.
4: It's having a very striking effect in that the fact that a revanchist power is trying to change borders by force... Uh, has strong echoes in the Pacific where China uh, lays claim to Taiwan as part of its territory. And uh, what seemed impossible um, because, see, now seems all too possible, which is that China might uh, attack and invade Taiwan. Uh, and you've seen you've heard a series of very alarm statements, By various American officials who've been shortening the timeline in which they think China might want to be able to stage an invasion. So uh, and it's worth remembering that for America it's China not Russia that is what they call the pacing threat. The, The one power that can overturn American influence in the world is China and therefore Taiwan acquires a huge importance.
1: Marine Corps Commander General David Berger is leading a root and branch reform of the Marines at the moment. It's called Force 2030, and the idea is to make the Marines better prepared should America need to go to war over Taiwan. The Marines, as part of this, are giving up tanks and other really heavy bits of kit and creating what they call Marine littoral Regiments, or MLRs, which are designed to be scattered along the first island chain from Japan to Indonesia to shore up allies in the Pacific. Anton spoke to General Berger about the
6: purpose of these reforms. We were organized conventionally, traditionally, as infantry regiments under the uh, presupposition uh, that you would have time to task organize in a conflict for what you would need to do In other words, time to put the pieces together, train together, go off and do. These MLR, the Marine Littoral Regiments, they're purpose-built for what the Indo-PACOM commander needs us to do. They are organized, in other words, organically with logistics, with ground, um, with air defense. They will have direct support aviation for them. They'll have the mobility to move around, which an infantry regiment doesn't organically have. That mobility will be either by vessel, the light amphibious warship, it'll be by the marine aviation that's provided to them. It can be by vehicle, which they'll have organically. So they'll have the, mo- the means to move from ship to shore or around from shore to shore uh, organically without relying on anything external. That's the big value of it compared to a, a regular conventional infantry regiment. The
4: reason for that, I think, but uh, I don't want to put too many words in your mouth, is one, geography and the importance of the first island chain and distances. And the second thing is uh, the fact that you are operating within what you call the weapons engagement zone of the Chinese. And therefore, it seems to me there's quite a lot of, you know, hiding and dodging involved in what the Marines will be doing as they scatter along what is essentially an archipelago. Just talk to me around the problems of doing that and what they would be doing in that kind of world.
6: This is a a evolution, not uh, an overnight uh, revolution, but an evolution in uh, probably the last 10, 12 years of much more proliferated, long range, precision weapon systems that PRC, PLAN, and other militaries now have much more available than they did a decade ago, which extends their range and their ability and the, and the ISR, the intelligence surveillance reconnaissance capability to go along with it. So what's, what's, what's different now? The PLAN has longer range in their observation collection and longer range with, my, with precision in their weapon systems. So that gives you a choice you can either fight your way into that or you can already be in there. We are in there persistently 52 weeks a year. So we will not fight our way in, we will be in already. And other US joint forces will be raid in depth all all the way back. So given the choice of, do you fight your way into that or do you you begin from a great posture already there, easy decision for the Marine Corps, as long as you organize for that, trained for that and equipped for that, which is what the MLR is, that is the uh, scope of the MLR.
4: Can we talk about some of the controversies around this concept? I mean, you know as you know, other venerable military officers are less convinced than you are uh, that this is the right thing to do. And the criticism stretches from, you know you've given up too much weight, you've given up uh, tanks, you've given up too much artillery. Uh, your forces are going to be too small and parceled up and vulnerable. Um, can you respond to some of that criticism?
6: This, I view this as a professional discussion, nothing other than that. That said, I have access to information and results of exercises and experiments and war games and all that they don't have. Trade-offs, they had to make trade-offs too. Um, I think any senior leader in any organization, you can't have everything. So you're, you're accepting risk in certain areas and you're making decisions based on what you think is uh, the, the risk that you can accept in order to make sure that your organization set up for success. The challenge for a service chief, me, and the Army and Navy and every other military is you have to be ready right now, today. You also have to posture your organization to be ready five years from now, seven years from now, 10 years from now. We, and the Marine Corps, I'm very comfortable, is both. We're ready today. Should any problem come up and the president ask us to go somewhere, we're ready right now. And we have overmatch over the people, over any organization we would need to be, uh, any, any environment we need to get set into. But we have to, we have to move now in order to make sure that we're always in front of the challenge, not behind it, not lagging, because we are the 911 force, we're the crisis response force. The tanks, easy decision. Heavy armor, easy decision for me as a Marine Corps. And that's coming from somebody who has fought with tanks, loves tanks, they're a great tool. But for what we have to do in the future, not a hard decision at all, no regrets, not a second thought. Because the force that we're building does what the nation needs it to do in the future. We're not holding on to something in the past because I love the Tiger Brigade and I love the tanks in Desert Storm, which I did. But that was 1991. We need to make sure we're mobile. We need to make sure we can move the force, the Marines, where we need to be. And the armor over time just got bigger and bigger and heavier and heavier in order to protect itself against other anti-tank weapon systems. And it got to the point where too heavy to move, too logistically, uh, too much of a burden to sustain. And it didn't provide what we need to because there are other tools, other weapon systems now that, that allow us to, uh, to accomplish the tasks that the Marines need to accomplish. The Army has a different role. The, the U.S. Army, Land Army needs heavy armor. They have a di- they're have they not an expeditionary force like the US Marine Corps is.
1: Well, I think the three of us don't often get to talk to Marine Corps generals. So, Charlotte, what did you make of that?
3: It's fascinating to hear him talk about the way that the military needs to evolve over time. One thing that he mentioned in passing, but that has been, we know, crucial to his planning on this is is war games in different parts of the world, but specifically war games should China invade Taiwan. And those show consistently that America would be outmatched, which is informing the reforms that he proposes for the Marines in particular. And so you see America's challenge now in trying to be ready for different types of battles in different theaters and the real problem that's posed by the prospect of uh, a Chinese invasion of Taiwan and and just how dramatically the Marines in particular, he thinks, would need to change to adapt to that risk. So I, I liked hearing the historic sweep that he provided of what America needed in the early 1990s compared with what it needs now. But it's not a straightforward transition, right? It's one that's controversial and expensive and carries some risks because you have to decide how to invest. And when you invest in one area, it means not investing in another.
1: Yeah, that's right. I also found myself thinking while listening to the interview, I wonder how this sounds if you're a member of the Chinese Communist Party, if you're a senior figure there. I mean, presumably, it's pretty alarming, Idris.
2: Yeah, American relations with China had not been going particularly well. I think that what we see just over the last two weeks, right, we had the spy balloon Fiasco, which resulted not only in the sort of ratcheting up of tensions, but a canceled visit between Anthony Blinken and Xi Jinping, which would have been an important move. And instead, what we're seeing in the next few days is we're expecting Xi Jinping to visit Moscow, and have a conference with uh, with Vladimir Putin. Um, they and that's just a striking reversal. Just in the last few weeks, the two of them, you know, both have permanent uh, permanent seats at the UN Security Council. They they are able to. Stymie action uh, at that body, which has largely been left out of of much of the diplomacy here. They've been issuing statements saying that uh, you know their friendship knows no bounds. You know that might extend even to the potential arming of, of Russia. American intelligence seems particularly worried about that. And all of this is just the prelude to uh, how Americans are thinking about uh, conflict over over Taiwan, which is just going to be a lot. Different from from this Ukrainian war right now, an island is just much harder to supply than uh, than a country that shares a land border with a NATO ally, which is you know for all intents and purposes untouchable. So there's a lot of concern right now, and, and you see that also among Republicans as well, who are increasingly minded towards uh, towards countering uh, Chinese action in Taiwan.
1: The other thing that's worth bearing in mind on the other side of the equation is the extent to which America's backing for Ukraine and Ukraine's successful resistance so far against the Russian army has strengthened Taiwan just merely by its example, right? I mean, most people who I read and respect seem to think that, of course, it's impossible to know when China might actually invade Taiwan were it ever to do so. But the, the war in Ukraine has pushed back that hypothetical date. Because you know, if you're in the Chinese Communist Party and the government, you look at what's happened and think, well, what we might have assumed would be pretty straightforward militarily, now looks like it would be something that would have a very great cost, even if you have to suspect that China would, would eventually prevail. And I suppose one of the things that you know, hard to get a grip on, but nevertheless is true, is the extent to which um, the Biden administration's policy in Ukraine and you know the fairly broad support in, I think in Congress for Ukraine has really strengthened America's alliances all, all over the world.
3: So it has strengthened American alliances, but China also sees it as an opportunity, and I don't want to discount that, right? In in that you have China trying to publicly say that it promotes peace in Ukraine. And you've had in the past month China's top diplomat Wang Yi saying that he will offer a peace proposal and highlighting the need for state sovereignty. But China also views the war in Ukraine as an opportunity to say that America is distracted and obsessed with the old world order and that China can offer economic growth and development to partners in the global south. So yes, you're right, but also there is a counter to it in the way that China sees this war opportunistically. But the problem is is that no one has a real answer for how this war is going to end. And in the meantime, it is a definitive test of what America sees as its role in the world and a test not just for Russia but for China about the world order that it's trying to advance. So that's why we'll continue to cover it and our colleagues will continue to cover it, not just because of the immense toll that it's taking in Ukraine and the ripple effects that that's having around the world in terms of higher energy prices and higher food prices, but also this long-term question of how the two biggest powers in the world are trying to define their scope and their influence in the 21st century.
1: Yes, that's right. I mean, Idris mentioned Vladimir Putin's anniversary, one year anniversary speech earlier in the podcast. That was a speech that set up this war in Ukraine as a test of rival systems and a test of rival values. Joe Biden seems to see the war in similar terms, given that it's hard to see either side um, backing down anytime soon what's certain is this won't be the last time we talk about america's support for ukraine on the podcast okay before i let you guys go i have a quiz question one the u.s department of defense of which the marine corps is part is the nation's largest employer how many people does it employ in total so that's military service personnel plus civilians and because our producer harriet is in a generous mood she says you'll get a point if you get it within the
2: nearest two hundred thousand. Oh gosh, mm, I would guess two and a half million.
3: Two and a half million, really? That's a lot of people. Um, That's a lot. I think it's lower than that. I would say one point six.
1: So Idris is closer. Are we doing
3: he... prices right rules or regular rules?
1: Yeah, I think we're doing prices right rules. Idris is closer with two and a half million, but he didn't manage to get within the nearest two hundred thousand. Uh, The actual figure is 2.9 million. Wow. Over 2.1 million military service members and more than 770,000 civilians. So I think under prices Right rules, Idris gets something.
3: He wins. He wins. He gets a dishwasher.
1: He gets a new set of clogs. Question two. I'm going to describe some celebrities who were once Marines and ask you if you can name them. The first is an actor who won two Academy Awards for The French Connection and Unforgiven.
3: Uh, Idriss is stroking his non-existent beard in a pensive manner. Um, who was in Unforgiven? I thought that was a Clint Eastwood movie, but maybe not.
1: I think it was. That's, that sounds like a good guess.
3: But was he in the French Connection? I don't think so.
1: No, he's, I don't think he is in the French Connection.
3: He's not in the French Connection. Yeah, I don't know. I don't know who that would be. Idris, over to you.
2: I, I haven't seen either of those movies, so... Yeah, it's really testing no, Idris' 1970s
1: movie knowledge. So the answer is Gene Hackman was ah, a former Marine. Good. good, Never heard of that.
3: You've person. never heard yep. of Gene Hackman? Oh, my no. God.
1: It's a traveler's checks no, moment. I'm sorry. Uh, Idris, I think this might test you also. The second one, a Jamaican-born hip-hop artist who was also a Marine...
2: Well, there are a lot of those.
3: Huh, they're, yeah, there are of Jamaican-born hip hop artists, but I don't know who the hmm.
2: It's
1: also, very, drawing a blank. This person's very mid nineties, which oh. I think might give Charlotte an advantage.
3: <laughs> Excuse you. Um, I I really don't know. I'm I'm sorry. I'm falling short as usual, but I feel particularly bad to be falling short here.
2: The only hip hop Jamaicans I know are. From the two thousands or 2010s, so I thought
1: as much. Are you familiar with the work of Shaggy, Idris?
3: Shaggy was in the uh, was in the Marines. That is shocking to me. Interesting.
2: No, no, I'm not not familiar with Shaggy. I'm sorry.
3: I wonder, was he Lieutenant Shaggy?
6: Um, you have to
1: hope so. Th- that's no points for Shaggy. No points for Gene Hackman. You you guys are you guys are on a roll. <laughs> uh, that quiz, I think Idris gets maybe half a point, and Charlotte gets null point. So Idris, you come out the victor. Charlotte, I noted that some listeners wrote in to accuse you of dropping points even when you were quizmaster last week, which seemed a little bit unfair.
3: I also noted that with despair, but I wasn't gonna dwell on it.
1: We also had some great letters about chili peppers from New Mexico and various other subjects. So please do keep those letters coming to us. We we enjoyed them a great deal. That's it for this week's episode. Thank you, Charlotte. Thank you, Idris. Thank you. Thank you. This episode was produced by Harriet Noble. Nicola Rofast is our sound engineer. Our new podcast next year in Moscow is out now. Please listen to the end of Checks and Balance for a sneak preview. There's one other thing we'd like your help with. We're planning an episode where you get to ask us a bunch of questions. Though, Charlotte, this will not be in the form of a quiz, in case you were wondering. We'd like to know what questions you have about American politics, policy, Congress, the 2024 election other things going on in America at the moment of consequence, or maybe you'd like to know a bit more about how we make checks and balance. Whatever it is, email your questions to our usual address, podcasts at economist.com with checks Q&A in the title, and we'll try to answer them in a special episode soon. In the meantime, thanks very much for listening. Stay safe, stay sane. We'll have more checks and balance next week.
7: This is a story about Russia and its ruinous war. But I wanted to start telling it here, by the Galata Bridge in Istanbul. The ferries on the Bosphorus Strait, the steep cobbled streets, the cafes, they all bear witness to a huge exodus. Thousands of Russians fled here as soon as the war in Ukraine started a year ago. Their flight echoed one made a century ago when many Russians fled violence of the Bolshevik revolution and civil war. Those events changed the course of the 20th century and this war is already changing the 21st. I've come to Istanbul to speak to this new generation of exiles because their stories help solve the mystery. ...of why this senseless war began and how it might end. I'm Arkady Ostrovsky. I write about Russia and Ukraine for The Economist. I'm the host of a new podcast series called Next Year in Moscow. Last February, hours before the war started... ...Vladimir Zelensky posted a video... The Ukrainian president was speaking directly to Russia's free thinkers in
6: Russian.
7: Who can prevent this war? He asks. People. The people, he says. Public figures, journalists, musicians, doctors, bloggers, stand-ups. Actors, athletes, scientists, doctors, bloggers, stand-up comedians, social media influencers, and more. These are the people who fled Russia in the coming days. I clearly remember this feeling that this is not my world anymore. Everything changed just in one second.
0: I felt the urge to call my dad. And I called him. I was crying. I was saying, I'm terrified. I don't know what to do. And I'm so scared.
7: When you live in Russia or in any unfree country, you have to have red lines. You have to to be ready to leave. The invasion destroyed their hopes that Russia might become a normal, nonviolent country. Well my country started this awful war and i think that this shame will be with us for the rest of our lives in this war ukraine has gained a new sense of nationhood but the future of russia is now in doubt can it ever be a place that these exiles once again call home the search for answers has taken me across europe and the middle east and along the fringes of the old Soviet empire. Ultimately, it led me to people who've chosen to keep light and hope alive inside Russia. Look for Next Year in Moscow on your podcast app. Episode 1 is available from the 23rd of February.